Hey, everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick announcement to share with all of you. Beginning in April, I'm going to be launching a series of college to career live weekend boot camps to help graduating seniors as well as juniors who are confused about what jobs or careers they might want to pursue when they graduate. So imagine going from confused to confident with at least three different career options you'd be psyched to explore by the end of day one of the boot camp. And then learning the tools, tactics, and the strategies to find those jobs by the end of day two. The boot camp is live and it's led by me over Zoom. And you can learn more about it at College to Career Academy. That's college, the number two, career.academy. Or you can just look me up on LinkedIn and check out the featured section of my LinkedIn page. I can't imagine a better graduation gift for the college students in your life. Thanks so much for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy my next incredible guest. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey! there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning a ton more about how to level up your health and wellness and perhaps how, if you need to, to finally lose the extra weight you've carried around with you for years, as so many millions of Americans do, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a New York Times bestselling author and the father of biohacking, who regularly hacks his own body to find the most effective techniques to level up his mind, his body, and his life. But before I introduce you to Dave Asprey, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that drops into your inbox every Monday morning to help you level up your insights into dozens of different industries and careers. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign-up box is right there. Now, my bulletproof coffee lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dave Asprey, the founder and chairman of Bulletproof. He is a three-time New York Times bestselling science author, host of the Webby Award-winning podcast, Bulletproof Radio, and he's been featured on the Today Show, my former employer, CNN, the New York Times, Dr. Oz, and much more. Over the last two decades, Dave, who is also known as the father of biohacking, has worked with world-renowned doctors, researchers, and scientists and global mavericks to uncover the latest, most innovative methods, techniques, and products for enhancing mental and physical performance. Dave has personally spent nearly $2 million to take control of his own biology 
pushing the bounds of human possibility, all in the name of science and evolution. He is the creator of the Bulletproof Diet and the innovator of Bulletproof Coffee, Collagen Protein Supplements, and many more advances in commercial wellness products. Dave's mission is to empower the entire globe with information and knowledge that unlocks the superhuman in everyone at any age. He is also the author of a brand new book entitled Fast This Way, Burn Fat, Heal Inflammation, and Eat Like the High-Performing Human You Were Meant to Be. Dave, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? My coffee cup is empty. (laughs) But I hope your heart is full. My heart's always full of butter. (laughs) Uh, It's full of of curiosity, actually. That's what mostly drives me. I love it. Curiosity is like, it's like mother's milk. And and I want to start by saying, if it hasn't already been obvious, as I showed you before, we actually started recording and I put on my special glass. Like I am such a Bulletproof and Dave Asprey fan. I have read two of your books before reading this one. I have been adding a tablespoon of Bulletproof brain octane oil to my coffee every day along with my grass-fed ghee. My only issue, Dave, I love everything about you, but I honestly got sick off the yak butter tea that I drank when I was in, when I was in Tibet. It actually, I think it was rancid and I yacked my way. That's what I told people. I yacked my way across Tibet after I drank the tea that, that actually inspired Bulletproof, right? You know, back when I, I graduated from my MBA, I said, you know, I did that a little bit later than a lot of people do. I had about eight years between my undergrad and my MBA. I went to Wharton. And I said, you know, I haven't really taken time off. I'm going to take three months and I'm going to go travel and see some things I want to see. I want to learn meditation from the masters. And I went to China and I went to Tibet and I went to the Great Wall and, you know, various other parts of Southeast Asia and didn't have an agenda, just wandered. And one of the places I ended up was in Mount Kailash, which is the holiest mountain in the world. It's very hard to get to, about a five-day four-wheel drive. And there's a thing that you do where you walk this 26-mile circuit around this mountain. And lots of pilgrims from Buddhist traditions or Hindu traditions or something called the Bone Tradition do it. And I read about it in Outside Magazine years ago. I was like, this is on my bucket list. And I just randomly met someone. This girl was like, hey, I'm going there. I'm like, all right, let's do it. So I went and I'm at 18,000 feet and it's 10 degrees below zero. My water bottle thing is freezing in my backpack and it's just miserable. And a little lady gives me a bowl of yak butter tea. But see, this was in the middle of nowhere where it's fresh. And I drank it. I'm like, wow, my brain turned on. I've already been a raw vegan. You know, I've lost 100 pounds that I had when I was in my undergrad. And I just felt so lit up. Something has to be happening here. And it took me a long time to figure out all the things that were going on. And I came back and just out of curiosity, you know, I I came back in 2004 and started putting butter in various things and practicing and just like testing. And eventually in 2010, 
I shared my first blog post and that was my very first post. Like, here's this weird thing I invented called Bulletproof Coffee. And by then I'd replaced coffee that didn't have toxins in it, figured out the bad proteins you can put in coffee and all these things. And I'm like, I wish I'd have had this when I was younger because I can think my brain works. It, it made me not ADD. And I barely graduated <laughs> from all of my training. Of course, I went to an Ivy League school. You know, I can't complain. But man, I struggled a lot. And if I had known how to turn my brain on, school would have been pretty much effortless as it was. It was a combination of, you know, anxiety, bad habits, and a brain, the hardware problems that just wouldn't work. Of course, at the time, I'm like, maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. Maybe something's wrong with me. It's a willpower issue. But all of that was really hardware problems and some anxiety. And, and all of that was hackable. And for me, getting my brain working gave me the energy to be able to do way more now <laughs> than I could when I was in college, which is pretty amazing. You're supposed to decline as you age, but that's not, that's not the way I'm doing it. Yeah, that's the, that's the narrative that we were raised on, right? That you're supposed to, like, it's normal for your brain to have difficulty recalling names and places and data, whatever it is, as you age. But honestly, if you're taking care of yourself, the opposite is true. Well, I will tell you, based on one of the, one of the books I've written, which was, it was on the monthly science bestseller list, which is a different thing than most books. This is, it was between Homo Deus and Sapiens and the Secret Life of Trees and all these things. So as an author, that's a big deal. And I studied how, how our brains are actually wired and what makes them go, what powers them. And the data in there shows that 48% of people under age 40, that means in your 20s, even in your teens, have early onset mitochondrial dysfunction. And that sounds pretty technical, but what it really means is that your body does a crappy job of taking 30 pounds of air and some food, combining them and making the electricity that powers your brain and everything else you do too. So if you're sitting there going, man, I'm really pushing hard, you're pushing hard with half the power you could have. And I was certainly in that case. And having that extra weight is a sign of it. Having brain fog is a sign of it. And just feeling wrecked is a sign of it. And that raises the question, well, what the heck is causing that? Because normally that doesn't hit you until you're 40. And then they just call it aging. And that also is optional. You can have a young person's energy production no matter your age, as long as you know what the levers are. So I wrote the book about that. And every single thing I've ever written on my Dave Asprey blog, everything that's powered Bulletproof has been if someone had just told me this when I was 16, I would not have been obese. I would not have struggled in school. I would have been able to focus at will. I wouldn't gotten sick all the time. I wouldn't have weighed 300 pounds. My career would have been easier. Like a lot of suffering would have gone out. And that's why Bulletproof has been, you know, profoundly transformative for people in college. And since the very first parts of the blog, I mean, I know people now that Dave, I started reading this stuff when I was 16 and now I'm 26 and like my life is so different and I have all this power and energy. But I will tell you, when I was 19, I would have said, you know, I don't care that much about my health. Yeah, I know I'm fat and all, but really, you know what I want to do? I want to be smart. I want to you know, grow my career, make my mark in the world and I want to get laid. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's normal. Totally. And this book taught me something that, I think is so important to understand. You don't make most of the decisions in your body. There's a quadrillion ancient bacteria embedded in your cells, those mitochondria I talked about. They run an algorithm, an operating system for all life forms. And imagine you're playing a sim kind of video game where you know, you're God and you have to make a new life form that's going to last forever. Well, 
because it's a little bacteria, it doesn't have a brain. It doesn't, it can't think about time. It doesn't have much knowledge or ability to do things. So it has to do simple rules. The number one rule that everyone runs on, including whatever age you are, is run away from, kill, or hide from scary things. Don't get eaten, right? And so fear gets 10 times more focus, more energy production, more energy suck than anything else in your life. And the second thing that, and this is not you choosing this, this is your cells choosing it for you. The second thing is, hmm, eat everything because famine has killed everything there is. So step one, fear. Step two, food. And then, okay, you're making this little life form. What else does it have to do to stay around for billions of years? That's also an F word. Fuck. I was going to say fertility, but I mean, oh, okay. I, can, <laughs> I mean, no, that's fine. I may just say it. I may just say it. Yeah, but yeah, okay. that was the effort I was talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, right. And that gets three times more energy than is necessary. And that's because now you're playing your little God video game. Well, you know, if I don't make sure that these little bacteria reproduce, they won't. And then it's the end of the species. So now you're sitting here in class and you're like, okay. Am I going to fail at this class? Because failure feels like death. It's fear. So you've got anxiety that's sucking energy, right? And then, oh, I'm hungry probably because you're eating like crap, partly because it's hard to feed yourself well in college. You can't do it, but it's expensive unless you know the tricks, right? And if you do intermittent fasting, like the new Fast This Way book, that's one way to save money and save time and have more energy, which is why it's really powerful. But then that third thing, okay, now you're trying to pay attention to some boring math lecture. And you're like, okay, what's going on that's scary? And it, am I going to get a job when I'm out of college? All that stuff. I'm really hungry. I'm thinking about nachos. And then look, is that an attractive pair of legs next to me? It's no wonder it's hard to pay attention to math. And, and it's okay, right? So then the trick is, how do I get more energy into my brain so I have enough energy to, well, turn off my food cravings, recognize that I can play with those legs later, <laughs> not worry about stuff. And if you have enough energy in there, there's enough left over for learning. But you are not wired to learn when you're constantly thinking about food, when you're constantly thinking about failure, and you're constantly thinking about sex. And you're supposed to think about sex between about 16 and 25. Mother Nature has intentionally not given you the full prefrontal cortex that puts you fully in charge of everything you do. You've got some of it, but not all of it. It's just, it, it really gets finally formalized around 24, 25. And there's changes in your brain that happen after then. But during that time, you're wired to probably put 10x on sex as well. So you're sitting there going, man, I've got all this stuff going on. It's, it's time for you to leave the tribe because we evolved you know, 150 people on the savannah and your parents have to suddenly become stupid. You're, all the people around you do so that you're willing to face lions, tigers, and bears, go across the savannah and reproduce with another tribe so we don't inbreed. This is why you're like, okay, I'm off in college. I'm off studying. And this is why the pandemic's been really stressful because Every fiber in your being is like, get out of here. I got to go hang with my friends. I got to go learn. I got to go make my mark. I got to do all these things. Yet here you are, you know, stuck somewhere without all the stuff that you're wired to do. And that creates more anxiety, right? And that's that first fear word. So we're in a weird time right now. Totally. But having more energy solves all of that. Totally. Well, as you know, Dave, I mean, you are speaking right to the T4C community, college students, young professionals who are on the cusp of or may have just started their professional journeys. So before we dig into Fast This Way, and trust me, we are going to be digging into it to help them learn how to level up their quality of life, how to conserve their energy and enhance their life. 
I thought we might kick things off by flashing back to when you were distracted by the pair of legs that was right next to you and and you were, I guess, engulfed with fear, fear of failure, fear of life. As an undergrad, you went to Cal State and you majored in computer information systems and you had a concentration in artificial intelligence. Is that right? That's what I ended up doing. I started out studying electrical engineering and then I actually started out at the UC and then I figured out, wait, they make you take physics the first year and physics is a weeder course where like the average score in the final exam is 17%. I'm like, this is torture and I actually hate physics. I'm pretty good at math, but I'm slow. And so I'm like, I don't want to do this. So I switched to computer science because it allowed me to not take physics for a long time. Literally, I was avoiding pain. And there's a major lesson in here. If something sucks and you're bad at it, one thing that you're you're most likely to do, especially when you're young, and I made this mistake for a long time, is you say, well, if I'm weak there, I need to put all my energy there because I don't want to be weak. And what the masters do is they say, hmm, where am I strong? And you focus on your strengths. And then you do enough in your weakness areas that you can get by. And just realize that's not... That's not how to become strong is by focusing on weakness. You become strong by focusing on strengths. So I remember I called my dad, who is an engineer, and I'm like, I think I want to study marketing. And he goes, well, if you want to study marketing, just go market. Like, why do you need a degree in that? Typical engineering uh, kind of thing. So I stuck it out in engineering. And meanwhile, I'm studying computer science and they're saying, well, write these dumb algorithms. Meanwhile, I have started selling a caffeine t-shirt online. And Andrea, I sold a the first product. t-shirt? It was a t-shirt that said caffeine, my drug of choice. This was the first product ever sold over the internet before e-commerce had a name. There was no web browser. Yeah. So I I literally sold the first thing. So I'm 22, 23, wearing a size double extra large t-shirt. I'm an entrepreneur magazine. Like, hey guys, this kid's selling stuff over this interweb thing, except then it called web. But no one even knew what the internet was back then. So I was there. And and this is something that's critically important. You you won't see this when you're young. Your view of the world is untainted by 20 years of basically being beaten down by corporate things and knowing how things are going to be and building your models of reality. So for me, I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And I was in like 80 publications as this you know young guy who doesn't know much about business. And I shut my business down instead of going to Silicon Valley and getting funded and all that. And I did it just because I'm tired of putting t-shirts in bags. I, I sent them to 16 countries. I'm just trying to pay for my tuition out of my dorm room. And... That said, it's kind of cool to be like, yeah, I'm the first guy to do e-commerce. But what I knew was the internet is coming. And if you're young right now, okay, you already kind of missed the 3D printing wave from 10 years ago, but it's still early days. There's tons going on there. You look at crypto. Crypto, really, the first paper came out in 2011 on that stuff. So crypto is still relatively young. There's lots of young people in their careers who are just doing stuff that, frankly, most people who are 40 don't understand, Right. And everything else you're doing that's just kind of interesting to you, some of it is the future, right? And I'm unusually gifted. I'm a futurist, so I can see the future, maybe better than the average bear. But what you want to be able to do is the things that are interesting to you are likely a career, but there isn't a a degree in it. I finally was like, screw computer science, because they want me to write code for some sort of old thing. Like, guys, Where's the stuff about HTML? Where's the stuff about the web? So I quit and I got a degree in information systems, which is how do you use computers to solve business problems? 
And I concentrated on something called decision support systems because we weren't allowed to call it artificial intelligence because the professors had already learned every time we say artificial intelligence, we get disappointed. No one believes us. So we won't call it that anymore. Now, AI is a massive thing and it's real and it's happening. It just takes time. So you have the benefit of maybe 20 years, 25 years, you know, 17 years, however old you are of hindsight. And for most of that time, you were a kid and your brain wasn't really tuned into this stuff. It was tuned into, you know, picking flowers and stuff that kids do. <laughs> so or video what, games like my son. Yeah, video games, <laughs> whatever. But you're kind of off in kid land and that's fine. So you have a relatively narrow window, but that means you don't have the blind spots that older people have. And you can say, I think this is going to be something that's really big. I want to go into that. And for me, it was, how do I use these things to solve problems? So I was out there. You so know, did with you a, know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated, Dave? I thought I would go get a degree. I wanted to be a CIO. I wanted to go you know, run a computer system for a company that would just make less work for people because I'm lazy. I don't want to do work. I, I want a computer to do it for me. <laughs> right. So and I did that. I went and I got a degree in that and I got a job and. I remember I went to my professor and I said, well, I've got a couple of things. I'd, I'm looking at about $45,000. Okay. This was 19 or no, this was 1995-ish dollars. So that's probably about 70, 80 grand now. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, you have to have 15 years of experience to get that kind of salary. And I'm like, I don't believe you because I have two job offers right now. And those actually weren't even good jobs because within a year of that, I'm like, why don't I just go over the hill to Silicon Valley? And then I was making 80 grand, right? And so can I just back up for a sec? How did you get that first job and what was it? Well, my really very first kind of intern job, I was hired by a hospital and I said, look, I have this degree in information systems that's almost done. You know, let me, let me fix your computers. So they hired me and I ended up running all of the support to teach, you know, 500 doctors how to use their computers. Doing work in support is a shitty job, whether it's support, you know, customer support, any kind of support. Because the only thing that happens, people are mad because their stuff is broken, then they call you. And then, especially doctors, I can stop a human heart and my computer won't work. What's this mouse thing? You know, all that stuff. So what I would say there, I, I learned a lot about how, how people actually think and organizational behavior. They don't teach you any of this stuff in, in school. People act differently. There's whole different sets of rules in corporations of different sizes and there's different language you use. And the thing that saved me, especially when I finally got that second job, I did the same thing for another kind of company that, that was involved in groceries and distributing food. And after that, I said, screw this, I'm going over the hill. I went to work for one of the big networking companies like Cisco. And every time it was, you know, a $15,000 pay raise every year when I did it because I was in a hot space. And because I, on my resume, I said, well, What's the hottest thing? And I took everything off my resume that wasn't hot. And this was something that was really beneficial for me and that I would offer to you guys. You probably have skills in 10 different areas. And if you put that all on your resume, no one knows what to do with you. So I had a, an advisor. I asked a VP at a company called Netscape, one of the first big browser companies that was acquired and then acquired again, but a very famous company where Mark Andreessen got started. And what happened, he's, he's like, Dave, your resume is all over the place. So I took everything off that didn't say internet. And I got two really fat job offers from that. And I ended up getting, one of them was at the company that held Google's first servers when it was two guys and two computers. And I became a co-founder of a part of that company, which grew to be worth $36 billion. When I was 26, I made $6 million. When I was 28, I lost $6 million. (laughs) (laughs) How did you lose it? Well, my career grew. And by being a, a real domain expert, by understanding what your company does, by adding value, 
you can get promoted. And what I did is I had stock options, but I ended up getting promoted to the point where I'm maybe 28 and I'm in charge of mergers and acquisitions for this multi-billion dollar company. I didn't do the deals. You need experience like banker, attorney. But I was the guy who would sit down and say, is it worth buying? Will the technology work? Right? Now, what business does a 27-year-old have doing that? Well, the reason was that I knew how everything worked because I was the first guy to sell anything over the internet and because I had gone deep and I had become a teacher. In my evenings, I would teach at the University of California in Silicon Valley. And I said, I'm going to teach working engineers how the internet works because no one knows. And if you really want to know something professionally, either teach it or write a book about it. And when you do that, you have to structure your thinking. So I could sit there in senior executive meetings where I had no business being given my age. And I could say, guys, here's the picture of what we do. And they go, wow, we can see it now. Because remember, these are people from a generation beyond me who couldn't see it, right? And I would do that. And the reason I lost all that money is that it was illegal for me to sell the stock because I had all the inside information. And then there was a crash in the market, much like the 2008 crash. Before that, there was the 2001.com crash. And so if I would have quit my job, I could have sold all my shares and been rich forever. But I was like, oh, I'll make more money later. So one thing that I didn't do that I would encourage you listening to do, I think a good advice because I was partly fearful and partly arrogant. I'm like, I can do this myself. I want to be independent. I want to be invulnerable. So I didn't get good financial advice. I didn't even always get good career advice. Fortunately for me though, and this is something really important, all of the career progress that I had came from people who recognized interest and wanted to give back. And they'd pull me aside and say, hey, let's talk. An example, this company called 3Com, which was basically the number two networking player like Huawei or Cisco today. I worked in IT there and I went to some employee training thing. The CEO of the company, you might have heard his name, Eric Schmidt, left 3Com (laughs) and went to the head of Google. Well, the other guy, there were two partners who kind of ran the company. His executive assistant, who had 25 years of experience, she met me and she goes, let's have coffee. And she sat down and she told me how everything works inside a company. And she just wanted to help. And then another guy named Klaus said, Dave, let me show you how networking works in Silicon Valley. And he taught me how to network. And then in every job I've had, there's always been one or two people where if you come in with authenticity, curiosity, and integrity, they will tell you the ropes. And there's no way I could have ever had the or have earned the right to sit in on board of directors meetings as a 27 year old. I wasn't allowed to speak. I was allowed to sit there and learn because of people like that who told me how to play the game. And and that's the thing when you're in your career, you find the people who have some gray hair and you say, show me the ropes and they want to help you. And see, this is what I missed when I was younger. It's to them, it's joyful, right? They're like, oh, this is awesome. There's so much potential here. And they're getting value from it because they love seeing you succeed, right? And then when you walk into a a sawmill, which happens a lot when you're young, because you just don't know. For instance, I've been working for six months at this this networking company. And I applied for a director position in the company, which is you go usually come in as kind of an entry level thing. And then you get up to a manager. But I was so arrogant, I didn't know it, right? So that was just like, you know, walk, that was just a stupid move showing off my ignorance of how things worked. But so they feel your pain more than you do, surprisingly. And then the good ones will be like, hey, let me tell you why maybe applying for that signaled that you weren't ready for that. Right. And all those things, you just have to be open to learning, but understand that, that the people where the voice in your head might say they want me to fail. No, 
trust me, they want you to succeed, but it's your own procrastination. It's your own ego that gets in the way. And so for me to do what I do now, it's been a lot of work on getting enough energy in my head and then using that energy in personal development stuff so that I could realize when I was telling myself a story that wasn't true. Love it. Love it. I post every day on LinkedIn, Dave, and one of the posts that I made last week was about the importance of transferable skills, even for college students, right? It doesn't have to be necessarily you've had some fancy job. You could have been a dog walker, right? A waiter, a server, an ice cream scooper, car park, whatever you did. How did your background in computer science and informational science or informational systems influence the twists and turns in your professional and personal journey as you moved from being an engineer into a biohacker? College is only there for two, maybe three reasons. One is to teach you how to think. The other one is to teach you how to interact with others, to give you, you know, time, socialization time you know, as an adult, which is cool because you learn a bunch of stuff there. You know, what works, what doesn't work. You date a bunch of people, all that kind of stuff, you know, do things that you probably wish you hadn't done a few years later. <laughs> but that's the normal experience. And the third thing it does is it gives you a, a, we'll say a pedigree, a certain brand. So if you go to a school that's, you know, has a name and all that, it does give you an unfair advantage because you have a network of other people. And I know that at least one of the VP jobs I've gotten was they saw Wharton on my resume. Like, oh, we have to have this guy. He's from a big school. In reality, the knowledge you get from school, it's all free. It's all online. So you can learn anything you want for free now, which is epic. That wasn't quite that easy when I was going through school. So it's not about the knowledge. It's about the people. It's about the brand. It's about the connections. And you asked me something else, but that was like the first part of my answer. And I don't remember what else you were asking me. Yeah, just the training that you had as a young computer scientist, how to think and how that led to you becoming a biohacker and those transferable skills that played a role. One of the things that I learned was that everything is a system and that systems are really complex and that they create their own emergent behavior. What I told you earlier about fear, food, and fucking, that is original Dave Asprey stuff, but it came out of studying what happens when you put a million computers together and you try to manage them. And so it, it, it's something you wouldn't think about right now, but we're talking over thousands of pieces of equipment right now just to see each other's video and all of that. Yet we don't have to know. We don't own them. We don't control them but somehow it all works. So how is it that we can get a result out of a system that we don't have full visibility into? Well, what other parts of life are like that? It turns out our bodies are the same way. We don't know most of what goes on in there, but we do know if you put this in, you get this out. So I was trained to be a hacker, an actual computer hacker, and to get into systems and control systems and break systems that weren't mine. And the body's the same way. The body believes that it's its own system. So if you weren't in there, you would be following your instincts. You'd still be eating. You'd be acting more like a deer, (laughs) running those F word things to the very best of your body's ability. And okay, how do we manage that system? And the definition of biohacking, when I wrote it, and people call me the father of biohacking because I started this movement. And the definition is the art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have full control of your own biology. If I want to hack a computer, 
I change the environment around the computer, the inputs to the computer, and then I change the inside of the computer until I have full control of the computer. It's the same way of thinking. It's very different from medicine, but it relies on some medical stuff and a bunch of other things like sleep and exercise and movement and when do you eat and all those different things. Those are just variables that we're tweaking. And I also learned to be lazy. One of the things I measured was, okay, if you want to have, oh, say, one person manage 100 computers, how much work is it? What if one person can manage a million computers? How do I do it with less energy, right? So everything I do in my life right now, I measure it on return and energy. If I spend a little bit of energy and get a lot of energy back, I do it. And if I spend a lot of energy and I get no energy or less energy back, then I don't do it. And it's the same when you're studying. You should change your major. If you hate every class you go to, you're in the wrong major. And that's okay. So I started out in electrical engineering, switched to computer science, and then I switched to information systems slash AI, right? Then I got an MBA. But you don't have to stick with one thing. One of the coolest things I ever saw, I go to Burning Man, have for a long time. And there's a temple at Burning Man that they burn on the last night. And people leave their baggage there, you know, pictures of friends who've passed, some of you need to let go of. And there was someone had logged out to the desert, probably $1,000 worth of training manuals for the legal exams to get into law school. And they lined him up against the base of the temple and it said, fuck you, mom and dad, I'm not going to go to law school and literally burned them in the temple fire. And what's going on there is we all get bad advice in what we're supposed to do, what we should be doing. If it's not compatible with what you give a shit about, then don't do it, right? And forcing yourself to, to get a degree because it'll be a good living, it'll be a miserable living and you won't actually thrive doing that. You might make enough money. I will tell you that if you want to get a degree in you know, some, you know, kind of, we'll say liberal arts, not that there isn't great value in, in art and science and writing and all that. I mean, there's great value in it. You might not want a degree in that, but you might want to concentrate on that. Having some sellable skills is great, but doing things that you care about is even more important. So there is, you know, the follow your passion. If your passion is eating bonbons on a couch, it's going to be tough. But if what you're doing really, really sucks, it's totally not right for you and it's okay to change. Absolutely. So I want to just touch on that first F, the failure one, which absolutely can be completely debilitating for young people, especially. <laughs> Let me tell a story. They're afraid of making any mistakes, especially when it comes to that first post-grad job, because they feel like if they don't pick the right path, their whole life is fucked. What advice do you have for them, Dave? You have no idea what you're going to be doing 10 years from now. No clue. You don't know who you're going to be in a relationship with. You don't know where you're going to be living. You don't know where your career is going to be. And it's okay to follow a path without knowing where it's going. So there is no permanent record. You can recreate yourself. I mean, good God, I started a new field. When I, when I first came out with this ultra clean coffee, the Bulletproof coffee, there was, the market size for that was zero. And I remember this lovely post on one of the coffee snob websites. And it was basically, this guy is from Silicon Valley. He's an engineer. There's no way he made a new way of processing coffee. He just can't do it. Well, you're going to hear that throughout your life. You just can't do that. But the reality is you absolutely can. A book you might like, James Altucher just wrote a book 
it's behind me. I'm forgetting the title. A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R. Is that trying to think of something about skip the, that's what it's called, skip the line. He writes about this a lot. But what you'll find is that there's, there's just so many people who are going to tell you, you have to put in your time. You have to do it the way I did it. They're not the people to listen to, right? So you can't go wrong. Get some experience, right? And you will be branded by your job. It doesn't matter. Change your brand. You can do it all the time. So <laughs> I went from IT guy to, you know, co-founder of a professional services group at this company that was you know, the one that was the creator of cloud computing as we know it today. And, <laughs> you know, my jobs change all over the place. One day I walked in and I said, you know what? As a VP of strategic planning for the company, I said, you know, I've done all kinds of stuff on the technology side. I want to do strategic planning. I think I know what the company should do next. And the guy says, I'd be honored to have you. And he hired me the next day, just like that, because I knew my shit, right? And all of a sudden, I have this, you know, senior manager of strategic planning title and, you know, completely different job than I'd done before. But it was the knowledge and the hard work and the passion and the curiosity and all that. And he took me to swing and he taught me how to do the job, right? So you can do it. It, it, it doesn't matter. Before that, I, I ran IT for a, a food brokerage. Like it, it's a completely different universe. And that was in the first four years of my career. So who cares? Get in there. And, you know, I have people on my team now. I've, you know, Bulletproof, I've you know, started and grown a company north of 100 million in revenues. And I've got a big team there. And I have five other companies with somewhere around 80 employees where I'm, I'm the founder. And I have a young woman in one of the companies. She, she sat down with me and she said, Dave, I want, you know, I, I want to make more money and you know, I want to have a bigger mark. So I'm going to go back to school and get a degree in marketing communications. And my advice was, why would you do that? She's like, what? I'm like, do you think I know what the degrees of anyone in my company are? I don't care. They don't matter, right? What I care is what can you do? So your time will be better spent on finding a way to make a bigger difference in the company. And she took it to heart. <laughs> and I think she's quadrupled her pay. Oh, yeah. It's called OTJ, on-the-job training. Yep. And you can take a course online. You can get a certificate. You can get multiple certificates. So fast this way, your wonderful new book that I just finished reading begins with a great story about a vision quest that you embarked on in a cave in New Mexico. What is a vision quest for those who may never have heard of it? And what was it that inspired you to go on it? One of the things that's missing from our, our modern world is the idea of a, a rite of passage. And in most traditions throughout the world, not just the Native American traditions, you find that there's a, a time where, you know, you celebrate and becoming of age, you celebrate becoming an adult, you have a graduation ceremony. You know, you go to, you go to Israel, like, oh, you, you spend your time in the military, then you go travel for six months, but you do something that marks a change of life. So I never did any of that stuff. And I said, right, I'm going to do a vision quest. And this is traditionally where they'd give you a knife and a loincloth and put you out in the desert and you'd basically stay all by yourself and survive until you had a vision. So that's a bit aggressive, but I hired a shaman to drop me off in the desert for four days in a cave with no food and no people. So I could just sit with all of the, the thoughts. And in my case, I was afraid of being hungry because I knew that it would make me hypoglybitchy and I'd be mean to people. 
I was already a big enough jerk. And I knew that if I didn't eat six times a day, I'd go into starvation mode and then I'd get fatter. I already weighed 300 pounds. I didn't want to get fatter. I'd actually lost a bunch of the weight by that time, but still I was, I was scared of it. But more to the point, I was afraid of being alone. And I'd eat when I was lonely, but also I was just afraid of being alone. So I'm like, there, I'll push all my buttons at once. And in fastest way, I tell the story of that because fasting isn't about not eating food. It's about learning to go without. Because there's all kinds of things you think you need. And then if you don't get the things you think you need, need means you die without it. So I need to get the right job. I need the date. I need tacos. You know, I need beer. <laughs> Whatever the need is, I need to succeed. I need to get a certain grade. Well, in your body, your body believes that you need that or you'll die. And then the story in your head is, well, if I don't do this, I won't be respected. If I'm not respected. Now, you stop thinking about this, but this is old stuff under your thinking. Well, if I'm not respected and I'm not loved and admired, then, well, no one will feed me. Then my tribe won't support me. Then the lions and tigers and bears will eat me. And it's not rational, but these are all feelings and feelings aren't supposed to be rational. So, man, I went to a, a high school where I would have been valedictorian, except I was too big of an asshole. So they made me the salutatorian, even though my grades were higher than the top of the person who got it. And it was easy. I didn't have to press myself at all. So I get to college and I'm like, this, I don't have to study. I just get A's without even thinking. And I think I got a 1.28 GPA my first quarter in college and almost failed out. It's like, oh man, you know, what's wrong? But all of the, it was all a fear and anxiety. Like, you know, what are my parents going to say? You know, am I a failure? And all the voices in my head were complete garbage. They were wrong. And what you can do is you can just, you know, ask yourself, is this true? And everything you believe about not getting the first job right and getting the wrong major, all that stuff, none of it's true. It is provably false. You just haven't questioned it. It's about questioning your assumptions. You do that. It just creates peace. And then you're like, okay, I can take the job. I can not take the job. But here's the thing. You're not going to starve. Like we live in a world where there are fewer people starving than at any time in human history. And is the economy completely trashed because of terrible decisions that people made <laughs> about the pandemic? Yes, the economy is trashed. Does that mean it's time to, you know, give up? No. Does that mean you might have to change what you do? Yeah. But here's the deal. You have at least a hundred years. And I'm saying that I'm going to live to at least 180, right? And you've got a head start on me if you're younger than I am. And so you've got at least a hundred years. And let's just go back a hundred years. Let's see, 1920. We just finished fighting World War I on horseback. Yeah, they used to have cavalry in World War I. We didn't have antibiotics. We couldn't spell DNA because no one had invented it. You couldn't just use a computer to find any piece of human knowledge there was. Like right now, if you're 18, or whatever age you are, but you have access to more knowledge than a king or a president of a country had in 1950. So you're like swimming in opportunity. And the fact that you can call anyone, video or not, anywhere for free and ask them anything and access almost the sum of human knowledge. Wow. Okay, so you have that on your side. Oh, yeah, and there's a short-term pandemic that this will be gone in a few years. The economic repercussions of this will be there because the middle class got gutted. Well, there's a lot of opportunity there as well. So it's time to just say, all right, I'm going to step up. But what will it look like in 100 years? I can tell you that very few people in 1920 had a picture of what 2020 would look like, but that's your time frame, right? You're going to have multiple careers. You're going to be able to have all kinds of experiences, write down the ones you care about, set some goals. One of the things I did, I read 
Think and Grow Rich, which is the first personal development book kind of written for business people by a guy named Napoleon Hill. A guy named Andrew Carnegie, one of the early, what we would today call billionaires, like the Jeff Bezos of his day, hired a guy to go out and ask a bunch of successful people, what do you do that works? And he wrote this this book and it said, write down your goal, put it on the mirror. And there's all kinds of different things in the book that I did. So when I was 16, I had on my mirror, I'm going to you know, have a million dollars in net worth by the time I'm 23, right? And I'm, well, it didn't work, except I did make $6 million when I was 26, but I didn't put on my thing, oh, and keep it. <laughs> so, I would say invest a little bit of time in, in that kind of stuff. That's a, a classic book worth reading. And if you want something a little bit more modern, my book, Game Changers, I asked 500 people who have changed the world. What did you do? And then I, I used math to figure out what they had in common. And then there's 40 something rules that are worth paying attention to. You don't have to do all of them, just find something in there. But that's your, that's your playing field. You have decades, decades to play around. And are you going to completely fuck something up? If you don't, you're not trying very hard. Okay. I didn't just lose $6 million. There's a few other times where like, man, I should make a million dollars. I'm finally going to have, you know, money in the bank. And then it would just evaporate like, God, right? Well, I'm doing okay now, right? It takes time, but just that patience, self acceptance. And just if the voice in your head is mean, you need to tell it to shut the F up and understand it's not you. It's ancient bacteria trying to keep your meat alive and they're too dumb to know what opportunities around you. Well, speaking of a time when your body was fucked up, you mentioned in the book that your body really started breaking down when you were only 14. You described your body as a shit show. And that was despite the fact you mentioned that you at one point weighed over 300 pounds. You also wore, what was it, a size 46 pants. And you were trying diets. You were trying to lose the weight. You were exercising 90 minutes a day and it wouldn't come off. So one of many things that surprised me, Dave, as I was reading your book was the fact that, I mean, yes, of course, fasting can help you lose that weight, but that fasting is about so much more than just losing weight. It's the need thing. It's that teaching your body that it doesn't need what it thinks it needs. So it'll calm down because anxiety goes down. And when you realize I have the power to go 24 hours without eating, without suffering and feeling like I'm going to die, it changes. You go to the gym, you pick up some heavy stuff and the body says, oh, I guess I can do that and it gets stronger. So fasting is is really an, a spiritual, emotional, mental exercise in showing your body, no, you're not going to starve. Even though it's telling you I'm starving, it's time for lunch. But it's just not real. You can go two or three months without food, without starving. But we start reacting to the world around us when we think we need all these things that we don't need. You know, I need to check in on my social media. I mean, I went through a time very early on where I was, we'll say, addicted to the internet. This will sound weird, but there was a time when you could know everything on the internet. And as an early pioneer, literally, there were only so many news groups and we didn't have web pages, right? So you could read all of them and I did, right? And they started getting bigger and bigger. And then the web came out and all of a sudden there were these web pages. And for about six months, I was like terribly stressed. I can't keep up. Like there's just more more than I can do. And I'm used to knowing everything going on in this super tiny community. And then, you know, if my email went down, I would, I would get seriously anxious. Like, oh, how will I communicate? What will happen? The bottom line is, who the F cares, right? So, okay, so you're, you're 
you don't have your phone with you for a while. It doesn't matter. But the voice in my head was really strong. You know, it's the end of the world. It just wasn't, right? So most things, in fact, I'll say everything that feels like the end of the world when you're young, it's just because you don't have the benefit of thinking in terms of decades, right? And very few things are the end of the world. Even if it's a serious health problem, you're like, no, I've got this. I'm going to handle it. And that inner peace is something you can cultivate. And it starts with having more energy to generate the inner peace and to understand what's going on with the voice in your head. But that voice in your head is what's going to make you send the angry email you shouldn't send at work. It's going to make you yell at people you care about. And some of it's biological because you ran out of energy to regulate your emotions. And some of it's just, you know, it felt like a big thing. But in reality, you know it wasn't. And fasting is one of the simplest ways you can actually see reality better. You can fast from alcohol. In fact, I would challenge you to do that. Go 30 days without drinking. Even when you're young, you can handle it. You can drink. Most people when they're up to about 23, 24, yeah, I can drink four nights a week and I'm okay, right? You're still burning the candle at both ends. And then usually by the time 25, 26, man, you know what? That's costing me. I think I'll just drink on Friday and Saturday, right? (laughs) And this is a standard thing that everyone who hits 25, 26 goes through that. And then you go, all right, maybe I'll take care of this. And you press, oh, I'm jiggly where I don't want to be. And, and we all go down this path. I'm just saying if before that you say, I'm going to choose to do the things that give me the most energy and power, you will look better. But more importantly, you'll act better. And you're better equipped for relationships, for careers, for everything else. Or there's a chapter in the book or a part in it about fasting from porn. right? And this is a, a major thing right now. There's those big three things, you know, fear, food, and sex, all of those are pushing your buttons all the time. So if you have a problem with porn or masturbation, which is really common, then hey, do 30 days, especially for men, without <laughs> just without an orgasm. You and did I published that. my data you, for a year. You wrote about that. that. Yeah, yeah, you went. I published the graphs. Didn't you go a yeah. uh, couple of months? I went a whole year oh. of measuring the Taoist equation. Yeah. It's age in years minus seven divided by four. And that's the number of days you should have between ejaculations, only for men. For women, it doesn't apply. And I was just trying to disprove it because I like to disprove things. And well, let's just say it, it holds water. And they say, if you want to live forever, only only ejaculate once a month and keep your orgasm to under an hour. This is for men. I'm like, what? I have to try this. And I will tell you, I tracked my daily happiness for a year and I tried various you know schedules of this. And my wife was cooperative, which was nice. And... There's something to that. I have had countless people who've heard me talk about this who reach out, Dave, this is stupid, but I did it and I got a $30,000 raise. I started two companies. Like I have more energy and focus than I've ever had in my life. Because you can take all the energy that goes into hunger or goes into sexual desire and you can turn it into energy to change yourself or change the world. And they don't teach you that. So you're wasting a lot of stuff. In fact, 15% of the average person's thoughts are about food. Fasting, the way I talk about it in the book, you can do it without suffering and pain, but you actually have more energy and you spend less money and time doing that. So you start there and then you say, all right, maybe, you know, I will go for a while without ejaculating. You can still have sex if you want to. You just don't finish if you're the guy. And the amount of energy that goes into your life, it's stupid. It, it's, it's orders of magnitude more than you're used to. And then you say, oh, actually, I have the motivation. Because motivation is part biological power and then it's part getting out of your own way and not letting the procrastination, the fear, if I do this, I might fail. It's better, this isn't you thinking, this is your meat telling you, it's better you don't try that. Because if you try that, you might fail, then no one will love you. Like, screw that noise. Just go do it anyway. 
and give it a try, but it's about owning that voice in your head and, and toning it down. You can train your, the voice in your head like you train a dog and it'll eventually become relatively well behaved, but you still don't leave a you know, raw steak on the counter around the dog because you know it's always watching. And that's the path of growing your career, growing your relationships and just owning your own biology. That, that's why I created Biohack and that's what it is. You talk a lot about intermittent fasting in the book and that has certainly become au courant in our society here in the U.S. over the last probably year or two. And it's something that I actually do and did before I read fast this way. Mm -hmm. I eat between midday, early afternoon and early evening, and then I don't eat again until the next day, with the exception of the good coffee and Mm -hmm. the good fat, the MCT oil or the brain octane and your ghee. Why is it good for us to eat that way? And what is it about the coffee and the MCT oil and the ghee that kind of kicks us up to that next level? When you fast, you're doing several different things for your biology. And it's not just about weight loss. That's a side effect. Your body has the ability to break down proteins and fats and things like that. But if your stomach's always full, Your insulin levels go up, which cause aging and aren't good for you and slow you down. And all of the energy that could go into cleaning up your brain, cleaning up your cells, keeping you young and strong, and basically telling the body, you better be good at turning air and food into energy or else, well, all of that energy goes into digestion instead of into self-repair. So that's why you're getting, you know, the freshman 15. It's not just eating. It's also stress. And it's also eating all the time, stuff like that. So what you want to do is you want to just, you know, sit down and say, okay, if I do this regularly, now my body has the ability to take all the energy that would have gone into constantly breaking down food and break down cells in my body, the old ones, the weak ones that aren't even old yet. They're just weak. They suck at converting food and air into energy. It'll get rid of them and it'll build newer, stronger ones. And it'll do that in your brain. It'll do that everywhere in the body. So. You do it for that reason, because of the anti-aging aspect. Now, the people who like to suffer, who believe that suffering has merit, will tell you, you have to only have water during a fast. And it's like, well, actually, guys, do you know those dry fasters? They, they say you can't have water either. So it's like this, you know, how extreme can we get? You can do those things. In fact, there's the second half of the book is about spiritual fasts, where, yeah, sit down, go a weekend without food, but also lay on a couch and journal, like rest. Don't you know, do a CrossFit workout and a 48-hour fast kind of a thing. By the way, if you're 20, you can probably work out and do heavy fasting at the same time. It's just a huge burden on the body and it might it might be more of a burden than is good for you, but maybe it works for you. What you end up finding though is that when you take on this practice, that your cells just become better able to make energy. It's like you did weightlifting for your cellular metabolism instead of weightlifting for your biceps. And it's, it's a powerful thing. But then what about fat? Well, I did a lot of research on this and it, it's in the book, but fat doesn't raise insulin and fat doesn't turn off something called autophagy. That's that process of your cells taking care of themselves, getting rid of the weak ones. And there's now abundant evidence. I've been, pre- I've been right because I'm good at this pattern matching for the future. So my first big book, you know, I, I published online in 2010 and it had intermittent fasting. It had keto, 
but it needs to be cyclical keto with the right fats. It was low in omega-6 fats, which is another big trend that's coming. And it also accounted for plant toxins like lectins. And all of these in the past 10 years have become their own kind of individual camps. You have to fast. You have to avoid plant toxins. Unfortunately, all of those matter. So I wrote fast this way because many people who try fasting would have been like I was. When I worked at that company that had, you know, so much stuff happening, it was incredible. I wish I'd have known about intermittent fasting because I, I didn't have enough energy to handle the job, to be perfectly honest. And if I'd have just known this one thing, uh, it would have been great. And I also know that if I'd have tried fasting, I would have been a monster at 11 in the morning. There's no way a heavy person or someone who's you know, not metabolically flexible can just have water in the morning and then feel great by noon. So if you're going to show up and you're going to go to class, you know, you're going to do things that matter to you, maybe starting out with a cup of black coffee is going to work better. And there's science behind that. There's three hacks in the book. The second one is bulletproof coffee, a little bit of grass-fed butter, some of the MCT oil, you blend it into your coffee. You have less brain fog and less cravings than you normally do when you have breakfast. I mean, it's that simple. And the third thing, you can get prebiotic fiber that feeds good gut bacteria. And if you ate that during a fast, it doesn't break the fast because your body can't digest it, but your gut bacteria get healthier. So I'll tell you, you'll save money and time if you do it. And I'll also warn you, there's companies who've tried to copy a Bulletproof and say, oh, you know, our special coffee you know, is targeted at college students, but they put garbage protein in it, like milk protein isolate, which is almost a waste product of the dairy industry. And they say, oh, there is good for you. And they'll put, you know, good stickers on the front. But there's a difference between having grass-fed butter and MCT oil and putting some sort of milk byproducts in a coffee and saying it's good for you and it's going to give you superpowers. It doesn't. So when you're doing intermittent fasting, you can brew the coffee yourself, add even a little bit of butter, a little bit of brain octane, blend it. You have less hunger than if you ate your normal breakfast. You save money, you save time, you have more energy. But it works because there's no protein and there's no carbs. And then your body is able to do the cleaning, go through the cleaning Mm -hmm. process which keeps your cells younger, gets rid of the toxins and burns the fat in your body. It does burn the fat in your body. And it's funny, Instagram has made it, you know, people always have all these body image issues. I promise you guys, I have had more body issues than you. I have massive stretch marks from when I was fat. And about three years ago, Men's Health came up to my house. And one of my companies called Upgrade Labs. We have these recovery facilities that let you recover faster than Mother Nature intended with cryotherapy and red lights and magnetic stuff and things that don't exist. It's it's a new category and it's a lot of fun. Later this year, we're going to be spreading that out nationally. But I look at like, how could you recover? What could you do? And it turns out intermittent fasting is a part of recovering just in general. So sleeping really well at night is, is cheap and easy to do. And there's all kinds of tech you can use, but really the basic thing there is prioritize the quality of your sleep, do intermittent fasting. And if you just do those two things, you're going to be much better off than if you don't. And your body will take care of cleaning yourself and you'll have more energy. I know we can measure that. Dave, you've mentioned it a couple of times now. You've talked about how fasting helps eliminate brain fog. How does somebody know if they have brain fog and how do they know If their body is inflamed, especially when you're in your early 20s, late teens? Well, the number one sign of inflammation is muffin top. So that is not fat. It changes. Some days you have it, some days you don't. So on a day when you have muffin top that you can see, you also have muffin top in your brain. 
because the inflammatory molecules called cytokines that are causing you to basically be swollen, be inflamed, are also affecting your brain. And you know you have brain fog when you try to pay attention and it doesn't work. Because a healthy brain, when you focus on something, magically, you focus on it. And when you want to remember something, magically, it's there. And if instead you're sitting there going, I can't remember the word for that. What was that? I don't remember. Why did I open the refrigerator? I know I've got my car keys. I'm at the store, but what was I going to buy? This was how my brain worked. I didn't even know it could work a different way because I was so inflamed. And when you get your brain working, you recall things like you wouldn't believe. But more importantly, it doesn't, it's not work. You you just do what you want to do because you have that energy and you have the focus. And sometimes, in fact, the majority of the time, something that you're eating is stealing your focus. And a lot of these health trends like that garbage protein in coffee is a common trigger. The milk protein isolate that's now being sold in some of the the pseudo healthy coffees. You'll also find things like, oh, I'm going to go eat kale. Kale is not brain food. Kale actually makes you hungry. And for a lot of people, it actually gives them really severe cravings and brain fog. And fried stuff telling you, yeah, French fries are delicious. No doubt about it. The science shows you get 48 hours of inflammation from from those fries and smoking a cigarette gives you only 24 hours of inflammation. I don't think either one's a good idea, but I would rather smoke a cigarette than eat a a plate of French fries cooked in canola oil, soybean oil, all the crap at restaurants. So order the stuff that's not fried. That alone could change your brain fog. Oh God, I can't believe I have been eating kale salad so much recently because I did one of those Kibo nutritional, you know, like inflammation marker tests, what foods I'm sensitive to. And believe it or not, lettuce was one of the foods that I'm sensitive to. And so the nutritionist that I work with said, well, you should eat kale or arugula (sighs) and things like that. And then I'm reading your book and I'm like, oh my God, it's just that it makes me hungry, but I'm eating it anyway after I'm breaking my fast. Here's the thing. If you eat stuff that makes you hungry, fasting is going to suck. And if you eat stuff that makes you hungry, it means it doesn't work for you. When you eat right, you shouldn't think about food for four hours. And when your next meal comes, I guess I could eat. But it's not, if I don't eat, I'm going to have to kill someone and eat them. Right? What, what's going on here is kale is full of something called oxalic acid that contributes to kidney stones. It contributes to inflammation throughout the body because this acid sticks to calcium in your blood, makes tiny little razor sharp crystals that circulate around and get stuck in various tissues, including something called vulvodynia, where it gets stuck in the vulva in women. And it's a really painful condition. So we're seeing a rash of people with kidney stones caused by kale or from raw spinach, which is the other major source. Some people handle it better than others, but it's not particularly healthy. This is why your grandparents ate creamed spinach, where they would cook the spinach to get rid of some of this, and then they'd put milk in it so the calcium crystals would form with the cheese, and then they wouldn't stick into your tissues. But now, because of the 70s granola people, like, oh, you know, we have to eat all these raw things. No, it's okay to cook your greens. And if you cook your kale and dump the water out, maybe add some baking soda, it's not that toxic. But to consider raw kale a health food, no, it's not a health food. It's never been a health food. and Sorry, you know, it, it might taste good if you fry it in bad oil, but you don't want to eat that either. No. So it, it's just understanding the, the biology. And in the book, there's five categories of foods that cause brain fog and cravings for people. And you're going to be more sensitive to some than others. Terrific. Two final questions for you. And these are questions that I try to ask all time for coffee guests, Dave. To share a time in their professional life when they struggled 
maybe they failed. And you've already mentioned one. I mean, getting $6 million, amazing. Losing it a year later, not so amazing. But the most important thing here is how you persevered through that challenging time. And if there was a lesson that you learned in that process. I had one job where it was my first VP job. And I worked for a guy who was an abusive jerk, to be perfectly honest. And I mean, I worked my butt off and he blocked all of my good marketing campaigns, just chewed on me in a way that other execs didn't. And probably part of this is when I was negotiating for the job. I'm like, you know, I can, I have enough experience. I can move the needle for your company. So I negotiated hard and I was getting paid more than the CEO. And I think that just rubbed him the wrong way. So he's like, I'll show you. So maybe I should have negotiated less hard or just not taken the job in retrospect. But I started questioning my sanity and people do this to you. You know, when, when you're actually doing good work and you're pushing really hard and then they're sabotaging you, it's okay to, you know, get out of a bad relationship with uh, someone you're dating. In fact, every time a friend of mine's been divorced, I'm like, congratulations. I'm like, what? Like, well, it wasn't working. You did something different. That's a win. And I should have quit the job within six months. But the voice in my head is like, oh, you need the money. You have to do this. What will, will, what will your resume look like if you quit after six months? What I should have done is quit. And if someone asked me, see, I quit because the boss <laughs> and I weren't getting along. And these, these three things happened. I will caution you, though. If you throw your boss under the bus in an interview, you're probably not going to get the job. You have to be very careful if you're going to do that. That's a, a major way. Because if you throw your last boss under the bus, you'll throw the current boss under the bus. But what I would have said is I would have said, look, I worked in, an, in a situation that was just not okay. I did these 10 things. They were all blocked. And you know, I respect myself, my abilities, and I wanted to go somewhere else. And a good hiring manager is going to completely understand that because quality employees are unwilling to stick with a job that isn't the right situation. But as it was, I was starting to question my self-worth and my sanity after this. And I sat down with one of my coworkers. I'm like, is it just me? But I feel like I put together a 40-page marketing strategic plan and it's 10 times more than anyone else on the executive team has done. And I'm just getting you know, run through the ringer. And he said, no, Dave, it's not. It, it is just it is just you. Like, like you're you're doing really good work and it's not getting acknowledged. I'm like, oh, thank God. So, so checking with other people is really good. And when I quit, after I'd been there for 18 months, I did my second executive plan and I put exactly the same stuff in it that I put in the first year. I changed the fonts. And the boss basically said the same things he said the time before. And I walked into his office afterwards and I said, you know what? You blocked everything in that plan last year because I gave you the same plan this year and you didn't remember it. So I'm quitting. And that was actually a liberating experience. I just wish I'd have done it sooner. So it's okay if someone's chewing on you. I know people work for five plus years for abusive bosses. And when that happens, it leaves a mark on your soul. It really does. And then you have to heal from that. And if you don't, you'll go into your new job with someone who actually wants you to win and you're going to think they want you to lose. And then you're going to be a bad employee until you go do your own trauma healing work. So you can be abused by in a, in a relationship, whether you're a man or a woman, abused not physically, but emotionally. You can have managers that do that too. And you get out of that. And so I don't tolerate that in my career. If there's someone in my company acting that way, I fire them. I've been on the other side of that as well. I've been abused and, oh, it feels so good when you walk in and tell them that you're leaving for another job. Ah. So final question. If you could go back to Cal State and do it all over again, but based on the immense wisdom that you have right now, what advice would you give yourself, Dave? You know, my final, my final semester there, or actually my, 
my final year there, I was like, wait a minute, this is taking me six years to get my four-year degree because I've changed my major. And I said, I've got another like couple of years of this at this rate. Like, screw this noise. So I, I did a double semester, right? Two semesters in one. I said, I'm, I've got to get out of here. Like, I'm, I'm done with this. And I also had made some changes to my diet. It's time to give me more brain energy. My GPA went from 2.5 to 3.9 that semester. And I just killed it, right? I would have given myself advice, do that a lot earlier on. Like plan, how are you going to get out of here as fast as you can? And how are you going to plan social time and human connection time in addition to getting the work done? And also stop shooting for perfection. Perfectionism is toxic. When I went to Wharton, I'm like, wait a minute, you mean I can get a D in five courses and I still graduate? And I picked the five courses that I was least interested in to get Ds in on purpose. And it was so liberating. Why? So I didn't have to pay any attention to them. There were, there were things I didn't care about. So I spent that time connecting with my, my friends in the program and focusing on the stuff that actually mattered to me. So there's no merit. Do you think I, I, do you think I know the GPA of any one of the hundreds of people I've hired? No, I don't care. And if a hiring manager wants to your GPA, they're probably a douchebag. Show me what you can do, right? Love it. So before I say goodbye to you, tell our listeners what happened at the end of your vision quest? Well, at the end of the vision quest, you know, I, I went through some pretty, you know, hefty emotional stuff I write about in the book. But on the fourth day of that, I had so much energy. It was ridiculous. So the shaman, I had a cell phone that you turn on for, you know, one minute a day to just check in and make sure you're not dead. She reaches out. All right. It says, you know, I'll pick you up. I said, oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll walk to this other cave. I ended up throwing on a backpack with no food for four days. I walked for 10 miles in the desert, got lost, climbed the wrong mountain, completely unbothered by any of this stuff. Tons of, tons of energy, eventually found, you know, the right pickup truck in the right place. But I was in a remote part of the desert where I could have wandered for days. Zero stress, tons of energy, unbelievable energy. And that was a really illuminating thing for me. How is it possible that I could be this full of energy without food? My assumption that I have to eat six times a day. It was just complete garbage. I felt better then than I had in a long time. And this is what happens when the body gets a chance to go in and do its own work on repairing itself. And this is why it's pretty important. You just don't snack all day long. It just doesn't work. And if you feel crazy cravings, something you're eating is causing those and you can do that. In fact, if you go to fastthisway.com, I've got two weeks of where I'm teaching the book for free. It's, it's a gift, but you can sign up and go through my two week training and I show you how to do it so you're not hungry and all. And I'd love to share that knowledge with you. If I'd have known about intermittent fasting from this other biohacking when I was 19, I think I'd be a multi-billionaire right now, to be perfectly honest. You're doing okay. Not complaining, <laughs> but I made some mistakes. And by the way, can I offer one more thing? Of course. So I talked about this early e-commerce pioneer kind of thing. There's another guy you've all probably heard of, Mark Andreessen, you know, famous investor, right? Well, I wrote a review of his first web browser versus another one. You know, I was doing e-commerce when he was making, you know, the beginnings of the web. and what he did is he went over to Silicon Valley and said, hey, I need help. And he asked a guy with 20 years more experience building large tech companies to help him. And he became a multi-billionaire. What I did is I said, I can do all this all by myself and I don't need anyone's help. And I wouldn't ask for help because they might say no and then I'd feel rejected. So I didn't do it, right? And yeah, I'm doing all right, right? But it's taken me a lot more time. And in my career, I had a chance to buy Mark's last big company called LoudCloud that became OpSource. I looked at buying them on the way up and on the way down, right? And he fought like hell as an entrepreneur to do this, but he had the advice of all these people that I was too arrogant to ask for because it was it was mine. All I had to do was pick up the phone 
but I wouldn't because I was afraid. And if you just, you know, look, you have that opportunity, you see something big, you push and you ask. And if you get a no, it's okay. Some people are going to say no and it says nothing about you. It says everything about them. And same with dating. You know, you walk up to someone and say, hey, do you like pizza or tacos? And if they say, I like pizza, I don't like tacos. Well, great. If you're the taco, it doesn't mean tacos are bad. It means they don't like tacos. Like find someone who likes pizza. It doesn't matter. And it applies to dating. It applies to jobs. It applies to asking for help. Like no doesn't mean anything other than wasn't a good fit. Next. Such great advice. Dave's book is called Fast This Way, Burn Fat, Heal Inflammation, and Eat Like the High-Performing Human You Were Meant to Be. There's a link in show notes. He's also the host of the uber-popular podcast, Bulletproof Radio, link in show notes as well. Dave, thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I have a hunch you have another bestseller on your hands. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.